0: The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Episode 5 of our weekly recaps, all centered around a new Starz series becoming Elizabeth. And, yeah, you're probably noticing I am not Christine Morgan. Hey, everybody. My name is Katie, and you might know me from a show called Queen's Podcast. Uh, Christine, a dear personal friend of mine, unfortunately is sick With the plague this week. So, I will be reading her recap for you. Don't worry, these are all still Christine's words, Christine's musings, just coming out of my mouth. And let's all take a moment to wish Christine the speediest of recoveries. All right, y'all want to get into the recap? So, we want to start off and thank all of you for your involvement over on Twitter so far, because this week we actually had our thread retweeted by the official Becoming Elizabeth account. Oh my gosh! They are seeing all the things you guys have to say, and they're sharing it, and that is so cool, because this was a big week. You guys, the series doubled down on the sexual relationship between Thomas and Elizabeth, which... I mean, I was hoping for some kind of creative way to explain the montage from last week away, but we didn't get that. So I think a lot of you are with me, though, that we're just basically watching fiction at this point. So hey, we may as well enjoy it. So we opened with the scene about how Thomas comes to Chelsea and he has apparently been standing out in the garden for three days to get Elizabeth's attention. I, you know what, I think we need to start a justice campaign for this man's poor manservant who gets roped into not one, but two ridiculously dangerous schemes in this episode. This is the first. He's standing out in the rain with Thomas looking just a miserable like these jobs are not glamorous at all. But speaking of servants, when Elizabeth wakes up at like three in the morning, Cat Ashley is just up and following her around like right away. Um, Cat, Cat girl, where have you been in all these other private moments? You're telling me she wakes up from a dead sleep in the middle of the night because Elizabeth moves? but she wasn't with the princess for a whole host of private moments in the last four episodes. Hmm. Hmm. Convenient. Of course, Elizabeth finally grants Thomas entrance, and he's drying off by the fire, and he reiterates his undying love for Elizabeth, and their love only happens once in a lifetime, and blah, blah, blah. For now, Elizabeth isn't really having it. She feels really foolish for letting him have this type of control over her. This is just like such a classic example of a toxic cycle relationship. Except, you know, she's a child and he's a grown man manufacturing the whole ordeal. Now, in previous episodes, we've known Thomas is ambitious, but in this episode, y'all, he's borderline desperate. He's repetitive, and it's finally moving into a perspective, Elizabeth's perspective. He's not all that attractive to her now, because remember, we see him as she sees him. Meanwhile, across town, it's 3 a.m. at Somerset's house and the French ambassador is called to visit. This visit sort of reignites my curiosity around the concept of the first and second sleep theory. I want to thank my friend, Cassidy Cash, who runs a podcast called The Shakespeare Life, for directing me to one of her episodes in which she interviewed Sasha Hanley all about sleep practices in early modern England. In a nutshell... In some of Shakespeare's work, he wrote about a first sleep, and so now we know people initially went to bed around 9 to 10 p.m. and then woke up in the middle of the night to get some work done, have a snack, have sex, whatever, and then turned in again and slept until like dusk or daylight. So this meeting seems like it could have fallen into that mid-sleep category. This is conjecture, of course, but I like to think that this was like the business witching hour for people at court. It sounds like Somerset has a trade. The Boulogne territory in exchange for French retreat from Scotland. An idea like immediately rejected by the ambassador just like a hard no hard pass from the ambassador and then pedro basically tells somerset that the court is being run so poorly that the cracks are really starting to show also like pedro is like everywhere in this episode the man has some kind of time traveling horse i think because he's in back-to-back scenes all in different places what is this witchcraft pedro Well, we have to admire his hustle, but I do think that when he tells Somerset that the people at court are basically really bad at their jobs, this like flips a switch, and Somerset goes into light panic mode. He's already screamed at Edward, and now his power is waning. So then, in Norfolk, an angry Catholic rebellion seems to be forming against King Edward. But even deeper than the religious resistance, it seems like there's like this injection of class warfare as well. And the motto that the early rebels are screaming is kill all gentlemen. Showrunner Anya Reese tweeted that this is meant to depict Ket's rebellion, which we know they used that same motto. So... Ketz Rebellion. The TLDR. Long story short, this rebellion happened because people were mad about two things. Obviously, they were mad about their religion and the raiding slash dissolution of the monasteries. But they were also mad because in the past, wealthy noble landowners had designated areas that common people around them could use to, like, allow their cattle to graze. But that changed around this period and the nobles started to privatize their land, making them wealthier off of the products from those grazing animals like meat or wool and other goods. While the villagers, basically, they lost an entire revenue stream. So this is where the class warfare comes in. But in a twist, Kett was actually a fairly wealthy guy, and he was one of the people who had privatized his land. So when the rebellion reached his door, you know, he was meant to be a victim. He, he was one of the gentlemen that they were, they were going to kill. Instead, he sat down and he listened to them, listened to what the rebels had to say, and he joined their cause. So yeah, that's pretty wholesome, actually. As the rebels move, their numbers increase and increase until they're, like, in the thousands. Now, I guess we have to wait to see if the show continues to tell the story of this rebellion. So, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but for now, it's real, and it's a powerful force. So, here's something I'm noticing, and, I mean, there's still time to change, There's still time for an improvement, but we are five episodes into this series, and we have been given multiple storylines. We've had foreign affairs, government, war, entertainment, religion, diplomacy, all the good stuff you expect from a Tudor piece. But all of those stories have been Edward and Mary's. And yes, it's a fictionalized relationship. All we've been given for Elizabeth's formative years so far is Thomas Seymour, and that's a fictionalized relationship at that. Do we really know so very little of Elizabeth's early life that all that we can see about her is a male-centric struggle? Maybe I'm just a bit tired of the cycle of that affair, but Elizabeth is quickly becoming the least interesting part of her own show. Listener Valentina feels the same way, and she says that they hoped that episode four would, like, end the relationship. But it's okay. It's okay. They have time to turn it around, so I guess we'll just have to see what happens. Back to the show. Elizabeth, surprisingly, agrees to marry Thomas, but insists they do so with the consent from the Privy Council. Listener Laura points out that by Elizabeth insisting that her marriage be proper and consented to by the king, it shows that she hasn't completely lost her mind to romance, which is a relief. But I wonder if this is also the character version of Elizabeth's potential out. Like, she knows they'll never consent, so she's shifting the responsibility over, I want to, again, appreciate Laura, who keeps us grounded in some odd double standards for this story. Like, Thomas and Elizabeth, there are other relationships and other marriages from that time that came about from wardships and that also had huge age gaps. Like, most famously, we could look at Charles Brandon and Catherine Willoughby. So, why does Thomas get such a terrible reputation and Brandon doesn't? So, several of you, like Brooke, Running Mama, Laura, and a few others, said that maybe it's time someone actually researched Thomas Seymour. In fact, Brooke suggests that he may need a whole character revival, similar to what we saw with Richard III in recent years. And hey, guess what? You guys are in luck. Because the Tudor dynasty's fearless leader, Rebecca, is doing just that. Okay, back to it. Thomas, he comes to his brother. He asks Somerset, you know, can I marry Elizabeth? And Somerset is like, what is the matter with you? (laughs) Like, Y'all, he is so sick of his brother's BS at this point. And to be fair, that really was, it it was a ridiculous request. I mean, after everything you've already done. And Thomas has like this brief moment where he's like, maybe I'm about to become an assassin. Ah, Sibling rivalries, they are the hallmark of the Tudor period. But what is really funny to me in this scene is with the servants again. Nobody moves a muscle to stop Thomas while he has his bow and arrow pointed directly at Somerset. So, you know, just another Thursday at Tudor court, I guess. Maybe you'll murder my boss. (laughs) So Elizabeth is arriving back to Edward's court. And Robert is there to greet her. And Cat Ashley, being the astute woman that she is, picks up on some vibes from Robert. She gives him like a knowing smile. What do you guys think? Do you think she's going to start using Robert to divert Elizabeth's attention? I tell you what, I am just thrilled every time he is on my screen. I mean, the actor is clearly handsome, but, you know, I just like the soft confidence of the character and how he's just kind of subtly discovering his own feelings for Elizabeth. I am just all about it, but I am here to tell you things that you don't know, so let's move on. Listener Lori, Lori gets it. Me and you, girl. We are eye to eye. We are on the same page. So, Somerset does a fast 180 after this conversation with his brother, and he immediately summons Elizabeth to meet with him. When she arrives, he has portraits of potential marriage matches sort of, like, on display. Like, all their portraits are just hanging up. He tells her that the king wants her to choose a husband to marry to secure religion and security. And Eric XIV of Sweden, who was one of Elizabeth's suitors in 1560, is one of the choices. So again, we might have some timeline bending going on. And another option is Otto Henry, who was a Lutheran nobleman with ties to the Bavarian region of the Holy Roman Empire. There is a third portrait in the scene, and we just don't learn who the third person is before Elizabeth is like, yeah, I am shutting this all down, shutting it right on down. As an American, I understand we have the reputation for being quite loud, Katie, side note, as a Southerner, I know it's even worse, (laughs) y'all. So yeah, I suppose it's true. However, as I watch this series, I really can't imagine how quietly everyone must have spoken in this period, because all these conversations happen in one room or one hallway, and no one else really hears what's being said. And then when Elizabeth meets with Somerset in a private room, Cat Ashley can hear from outside the door. Is this a continuity thing? Or I wonder if because these rooms may have like had tapestries and cloth on the walls that lots of people with heavy fabric on, maybe the sound just got absorbed, didn't travel well. I I don't know. Okay, so back at Whitehall, the king has been made aware of Somerset's plan to trade or sell Boulogne, and uh, the king is furious, and rightfully so. He's not even being briefed on major decisions, and you know what? That's totally unacceptable. But when Edward addresses the Privy Council and reads the letter from his sister Mary detailing the potential deal, Somerset shows his cards. He believes he acted on Edward's behalf, yet he knowingly conducts deals and secrets? Listener Ashley and Running Mama did have some questions about why Henry VIII would have left the Seymour brothers in charge if they were known to be ambitious. And I agree with responses that the purpose of the setting up of the council was part of the protections Henry would have put in place. But also, they were both related to and invested in Edward. So, like, maybe Henry thought that they'd be vicious on Edward's behalf and not towards his power. Again this is why I like the humanity that's always been infused into these characters of the Tudor siblings in this series. It's not cutthroat, yet... Uh. anyway. Then Somerset has another outburst directed at the king, and I do think it will be his last. The king is furious. So furious, he threatens Somerset's life in front of the entire council that threat did really happen actually edward is known to have threatened somerset's life initially thomas reacts to that threat against his brother as if he realizes uh for the first time oh oh shoot politics are important this just got real this just got real 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 But then he corners Henry Gray and attempts to form a plot to overthrow his brother Somerset and gain control of the Privy Council and the king. For all of Henry's flaws, he at least has the sense to reject Thomas's attempt to play into the spirit of rebellion. Thomas then reveals to Henry that he has Elizabeth, quote-unquote, has Elizabeth which I guarantee you we will hear about again. Gray is going to be able to use that against Thomas at some point. Mark my words. So then Thomas has a no chill and he goes straight to Elizabeth. Obviously to make sure that he still had her interest and attention because he's realizing that like I'm I'm really going to need that aspect of this. I'm going to need Elizabeth's devotion. And of course, she invites him to her bedchamber. But Elizabeth's moment of realization that she's been tricked again, is when she tells Thomas she loves him. And he just doesn't even respond. Obviously, that moment is mortifying for her. It immediately returns those feelings of being foolish. Listener Running Mama pointed out how desperate he is in that scene. His physicality is that he's, like, clawing at her. He's clinging to her. And I think it's because now he's putting on a show. He thinks that this is what Elizabeth needs to stay on his side. But he's missing her feelings just completely. I really feel for this young girl here. But again, this is like her only storyline. Ouch. Meanwhile, Thomas gets to run around bribing people for passage as he goes to liberate the king from Somerset's hold, a.k.a. kidnap him. And this poor servant he's got with him is just like in shock Oh, once again when he realizes what is happening and what he is being asked to do by the great Lord Admiral. Now, for the big moment of the episode, Thomas breaks into Hampton Court in the middle of the night and goes to find King Edward. He's now armed with a pistol. Forgive me if there's a fancier name or a different name for that, but I, I would call it a pistol. I don't know only resistance he meets is the king's dog who starts barking at him. There is historical record of this dog being shot after alerting guards to an intruder. Some of you knew that right away that what was going to happen to this poor little dog but I personally didn't expect Thomas to shoot the dog. Some of you knew right away what was going to happen to this poor little dog, but I honestly didn't expect to see Thomas Seymour shooting the dog. This has been a rather rough series for animals, hasn't it? So, in our fact check, yeah, Edward's spaniel was shot dead, but it's not clear on record who shot the dog. Some sources do say Thomas Seymour, though perhaps the most famous is the imperial ambassador, who writes to his emperor about the event, but then admits in the letters that he's writing based on rumors that he still hasn't, like, found out the truth about. In addition, without revealing the excellent research of Rebecca before she has the chance to publish, I will say that, in reality, Thomas appeared the very next morning at Parliament. So why would he walk as a free man into Parliament if he had been apprehended on treason the night before? This is, I, I don't really have the answer to, but I leave you to ponder that yourself. Then Robert chases down Thomas and basically says, <laughs> you're done. Your credibility here, it's over pack your bags, buddy. It looks like a kidnapping or assassination attempt at this point, and Thomas really tried to gaslight the whole chamber into believing he was there just to, just to test security. Um, not, not the worst cover, to be honest, but if we're going to talk about reviving historical interpretations, we have to include listener Rosemary's suggestion that if Thomas really did attempt to kidnap or murder the king, she thinks it's a callback to Richard III as well. I know that's going to split the audience 50-50, but it is kind of a similar vibe. Anyway, Robert is like, sorry guy, we're not having it. Shout out to the stunt team for Robert's tumble down the stairs I love a good stunt. I love a good stunt, man. And that was a good one. In the final scene of the episode, Sir Anthony Denny reappears, presumably the morning after the kidnap slash assassination attempt, and he wants to warn Princess Elizabeth. He's like, you're going to be questioned because Thomas attempted treason. Now, this did happen. Elizabeth was questioned about her knowledge and potential plots and her participation in the scandal, but I think we'll see some of that in the next episode, so let's put a pin in it, shall we, and save the deeper dive for then. As always, thank you so much for listening and for contributing to your questions, answers, and general curiosities about history. This has been another fantastic week. And, well, the notes say I'll see you next time. Same place, same time for episode six. But I will not see you next time. But Christine will be back for episode six. She's so sorry she had to miss it this time. But I hope I did her justice. And I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. All right.